Welcome to the God's Goodness Podcast, where our mission is to encourage as well as highlight God's goodness and modern-day miracles. We are your hosts, Josh and Shelley Hankins. Today we have with us the famous Pastor Rick. He was mentioned in four of the first 17 episodes. He's been making an impact for the kingdom for decades. People in our previous episodes, they some knew him before he was a pastor, and they, he's just so meaningful in so many people's lives. And we are blessed to have him here with us today. He's taking a break out of his super busy schedule to be with us. And we would like to uh, have him open us with an opening prayer. Holy Spirit, without you, none of this is possible. We know that you know every heart and that you will cause those who need to hear this to listen. And we believe that the words that go forth, which are your words, scriptures that will be used, will hit the mark and that a fire would ignite in every heart that people's lives would be changed all over the world for your honor and for your glory and that we would hear feedback of it, God, to encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. So where would you like to start? Well, I'd like to start with this morning when I woke up, a word came to me. God meant it for good. Of course, that's from Joseph's account with his brothers. Remember that? And so I made a devotion out of it for a new book. And I'm calling it The Tapestries of Our Lives. The scripture Genesis 50, verse 20, says, But as for you, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. So I awakened this morning with these words in my thoughts, God meant it for good. One of the meanings of the Hebrew word for meant, M-E-N-T, is to weave, to plait or interpenetrate. And because God is greater than anything bad that comes against us, he is able to creatively weave it together to make an even stronger, better, more unified, positive outcome. Even when we fail, God is gracious, and as we look to him, he can make good out of it. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ropes are made of many individual strands of fibers, yet all weaved or braided together, they create a bond that is strong and able to withstand great pressure. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14 says, For I know the thoughts and plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good, not for evil, always to bring you to an expected end. When you seek me and search for me with all your heart, I will be found of you, and I will turn away your captivity. So when something adverse happens in life, Let's say, God, I look to you 
to make this all come out for good. Be glorified quickly. Now, why don't you take a moment and think about how God has gifted you with testimonies of victory through all you've experienced in life. Remember, whatever others do to oppose us or God in us, God himself will make it come out good for us if we pray and believe. And I close with this prophetic word that God gave me. As a matter of fact, when I was writing this, I thought, oh, I remember a word God gave me at a red light years ago. And I thought, now, where is that copy of that that I can read it? That would be good for here. And I opened this book here and I'm reading and there it is. <laughs> I love how God works. Mm. So this is what it says. The Lord's plans and purposes and details are intricately woven in every fiber of our being and lives. Look at the threads of evidence in your life. He is powerfully weaving a story of glory, each thread closely intertwined to provide strength and moral fiber, all to unveil him and his love and compassion. Isn't that neat? Mm -hmm. It is. You can see that if you look back in your life. For right? sure. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of Johnny Miller's episode when, you know, you don't look at one chapter. You look at the, your story isn't over yet. If you're not dead, God's not done with you yet. Right. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't get you so far only to have gotten you so far. Mm -hmm. There's always more that he has for you. There's always more he wants from you to accomplish for the kingdom, for his glory. There, there isn't a finite end where he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You're 20 years old. That's all I got for you. And then he just leaves you on your own, right? Mm -hmm. There's never there's never a finish or a completion to the work that he has laid out for us. I really appreciate, you know, the looking back because you can get so close to Jesus, but he'll keep always being out of reach because we wouldn't need him if we could meet him, Right. And the only way to really measure our walk at a certain point, especially the older we get in our walk, we get wiser, we get more aware of our sin, we get more aware of the things that, that aren't okay with God, right? And the only way to measure where we, where we are is by looking about how far we've come. And I'm always amazed at how far I've come. I mean, the person I was and the person I am are not recognizable to each other in, in any way. Not at all. Not not even in looks, I don't think. I would be able to recognize myself if I saw me 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's an incredible transformation that God has, has performed through obedience, through a faithful walking with him. And I, for one, am very, very glad that I, I chose him. I'm very glad he chose me first so that I could lean in and choose him. And I'm curious, Pastor Rick, did you have Jesus in your heart? Like your entire life, were you raised in a church or did you pick him up through adversity? Did you like have something happen to you and you're like, man, I gotta, I gotta, I need a better way? It was through adversity, but I was raised, my mother was Catholic, my father was Lutheran. They never went to church, but they sent us to church. And uh, we walked well over a mile to church as little kids. 
in the East Liberty portion of Pittsburgh. And for some reason, I know God's hand was always on me. I was real religious. I always wore a little crucifix on my belt loop. I was ultra Catholic, you know. The more I learned, the more I did in all of the Catholic traditions. And um, from the time I was in fifth grade till the time I was 21, when I gave my life to the Lord, I actually prayed three entire rosaries. I don't know if you know what that is. It's 60 some, 63 or 64 prayers, repetitious prayers, okay? Three of those every day. I went through my little black prayer book cover to cover every day. I had a pile like this of uh, prayers to saints and angels, prayed them. Always, never passed a church without stopping to make a visit. Went to Catholic school, went to Mass and Communion daily as much as I could, you know. So there was all that um, interest in God. But we can be real religious and not really know God. And then what comes to me is how when I was about, oh, maybe four or five years old, it was New Year's Eve, and my father wasn't home, but my mother let us stay up. So back in that day, we would open the windows, and we would bang pots to make noise when the year turned over, okay? Um, I thought you were going to say on a normal day, I'm like, wait. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just Tuesday. Uh -uh. <laughs> okay, that makes no sense. On a normal New Year's Eve, okay? okay. So, <laughs> although we did play with pots when we were kids. <laughs> but anyways, so my mom opened this window, and we were about to bang our pots, and a big cross appeared in the sky. It was red, and we never did bang the pots. I mean, we got this feeling of overwhelming presence of God. Hmm. So when things like that happen, then you kind of check on your behavior. I mean, I was just a little kid, but I was conscious of right and wrong. And so you try to be better, but, you know, you keep failing. So as my story goes on, when I was 19, I was um, drafted in the Army. That would be Vietnam era? Yeah, Vietnam era, yeah, 1969. Mm -hmm. And I went through my basic training, and I was told that was the toughest part. And so, oh, there's just so many things that happen, but I'm going to leave out details that aren't really important, but even though you can see it had to be God's hand in it all. Mm -hmm. So to make a real long story short, I spent a year, my first year in the service, and then I was working in the mail room, and an officer came in and said, oh, Cardell, that's a good assignment. I said, what is? And he said, oh, didn't anybody tell you? You're on a one-man levy or list to go to Vietnam. Well, I felt the, like the blood rushed from my feet all the way up to my head, and it felt like my head was going to pop off. It was a spirit of fear mm. that came into me. 
And I walked around like a zombie. I couldn't think right or anything. And uh, one day, a co-soldier, a friend, said, uh, you know, something's wrong. You need to talk to captain, you know. And uh, I said, even though I worked for him, I couldn't. How do, how do you do it, you know? So when the captain was away for lunch, this guy took me into captain's office and sat behind his desk and said, no, just pretend I'm the captain and tell me what's going on. And so I did, and it really helped. So when the guy came back from lunch, I did the procedure, you know, went in mm -hmm. and talked to him. And they said, we were going to, call you in here today. What's wrong with you? And so I told him when I got the word about going to Vietnam, I said, I can't think or anything. He said, well, do you think you would go AWOL? And I said, oh, I'd never think of doing that. And he said, well, would you consider going to mental hygiene? And I said, yeah. And so I went and talked to a man for about an hour. And then he said, okay, I'll make you an appointment with a doctor for this week. And I thought, a week? You know, I only get so many days leave before going to Vietnam. And so I go back to my barracks. I had my orders to go. And uh, I pulled out my Bible, which a non-believer gave me before going into the service, actually God again, you know, weaving. Mm -hmm. And I did read it. And uh, I said, God, you know, I'm so upset that I can't find the words to talk to you. If you're for real, I'm just going to hold this Bible between my hands. I don't recommend people do this, you know, but God knows where we are. I was a non-believer. And, uh, I'm going to let it fall open. Wherever it falls open, if you're for real, please speak to me through that. And it opened to the book of Job. And I think we all know Job's story. And I read the whole thing. And I said, God, what are you saying to me? Just have patience. And this is all going to work out. I said, I'm down here. Here's my orders in black and white. You're way out there somewhere. And there's nothing you can do about it. I don't believe in you anymore. Well, I wasn't really a believer anyways. I mean, I believed with my head, but not mm. with my heart. You knew him, but you didn't know him. Right. I knew him in the mental ascent kind of way, but not in the pure faith, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which is necessary. Mm -hmm. And so with that, the next day I cleared the post and I went home on my leave, visited people, and, uh, oh, I don't think I told you I was an alcoholic, did I? No, you did not mention that. Okay, yeah. When I was 19 years old, as religious as I was, I tell people I was a good Roman Catholic alcoholic because I did all of the religious things, but I drank hard liquor every day. And all right, now back to where I was. I visited people, and then it was the day before I was supposed to go to uh, California to uh, go to Vietnam. But let me back up a little sentence or two. So I had this leave. It was about a month, okay? But all that time, I isolated myself from family and everybody. 
I hated life. I hated everybody and everything because I felt so helpless. That's where mm. the devil wants us. Look. Exactly. Isolated. And so I shut myself up in my room. I lived with my family, siblings, and so on, you know, and uh, didn't eat with them or anything. But I wrote, I just remember terrible things I wrote all over my bedroom walls and stuff like that, you know, about how life isn't fair and so on. <laughs> but then it was that night, that day was graduation for my one brother from high school. And so there were parties, you know. And uh, But I found myself in front of the bathroom mirror and uh, I saw myself divided into two. And one side was saying, hey, there's nothing left of this life after life. You don't have to go through this Vietnam thing and stuff like that. This is what you do. You go down to the drugstore buy a big bottle of aspirin, 50 bear aspirin, <laughs> okay? And uh, so then you come home and you go to sleep. It's painless. So I did that. I went down. I, the, the, the other side was saying to me, no, very gently, don't do that. That's wrong. So I gave in. I went down, got the aspirin, stood before that mirror, took them all, then nothing seemed to be happening, the grace of God. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went out drinking with my brother. I remember, this is funny, uh, one lady at the party says, oh, I have such a headache. Do you have an aspirin? <laughs> I said, no, I just took a whole bottle. <laughs> and we just laughed about it. She didn't. It's funny didn't. because, you know, aspirin thins the blood mm -hmm. and alcohol thins the blood. That you know, you're making gestures, looking up and holding your hand. Like, I don't think people really understand the magnitude of how dead you should be. That with the drinking and the aspirin, a whole bottle, that we should not be having this conversation, right? You shouldn't be here for this conversation. So I don't that's think good. I don't think our listeners really understand the gravity of that situation. That that's not a good place to be. That, and you were functioning. I was. You were able to have a conversation and make jokes. Uh huh. Now that should not have been either. Uh huh. And so after that, I went home. Everybody else had retired. There was a girl in the town. She's a couple, two or three years older than me. She hung around with us. She was like family. So she was like always at our house, you know. She didn't live there, but she was always there. And we would talk. We were good friends. And so we were sitting in the dining room. And all of a sudden, I saw total blackness and fire. And I said, God, God, please don't let me die. I knew I was going to hell. And then all of a sudden, I was back in the dining room. You know, She said, what are you talking about? And I told her what I'd done. She said, well, go stick your finger down your throat. Try to get as much of this up as you can. Go take a cold bath. And then we'll go walking. She, this girl, she kept, and she was a little thing. She kept me up all night. We walked. We went down to the river and waded and uh, went to the reservoir, walked around the reservoir. And uh, I just said, I can't do it anymore. You know, I just start to fall down. She said, no, no, come on. And so then uh, we went to her house. She gave me some toast and tea and then took me home while well, I'm laying on the couch. And uh, 
My father comes down. He's got up late for work. He's rushing around. And he says, aren't you supposed to report to California? I said, yeah. He said, well, you better get going because you don't want to be marked AWOL. I just ignored him. I was sick. Okay. And then my mother came down. And you know how mothers sense things. Mm -hmm. They know their kids. And a uh, 19-year-old kid. <laughs> but she said, oh, my God, what's wrong with you? So I told them what I did. And she said to my dad, come on, we got to take him to the hospital and get his stomach pumped. And my dad, who, he was the town drunk, okay, you know you were a dad, you know, but you came to know Jesus, that's good, and he got delivered. <laughs> so there was no respect and everything for him, like I should have had. And he says, I've had it with these kids. They take everything into their own hands, you know. Let them die. And uh, he knew I wasn't going to die. If I hadn't died yet, I wasn't going to die, you know. He had some wisdom, worldly wisdom. So my mom calls the Red Cross and all this, and they say, well, take him to a veteran's uh, hospital. So we went, and I was interviewed by three different doctors, and each one said, oh, well, you don't want to talk to me. You want to talk to Dr. So-and-so. And then the last doctor that I wanted to talk to wasn't there. So now I'm really frustrated. And I said, let's get out of here. I'm feeling better. Okay. So we go home. Was that uh, the next day after you took the pills? Yeah, yeah. It was the next day because I had walked all night, you know, and stuff like that. You know, the girl kept me up. Did all night. You, did you know that girl before? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. She was a part of our. No, she was a part of our family. She was always at our house. Always, we all piled around together, you know. So then, my mother, she took me down to a local doctor, and my body was so swelled up that I couldn't put shoes on. So here I was walking down the street without any shoes, you know, but we went to the doctor and I don't know all the, you know, medical things and stuff like that. But I do remember the doctor said, well, your body seems to take in the complete opposite reaction to this than it should have. I'm going to give you a saltwater injection and you should be okay to catch a later plane. So I go home from there and I thought, I'm not doing this. I can't go and kill people. I can't. And so I threw some stuff in a paper bag and went out the door. And my mother says, if you're going AWOL, don't ever bother coming back to this house. And so I left. Hitched a ride to Keystone State Park. Stayed up there. Lived in the woods. Raccoon ate all my food, <laughs> and uh, but I it was summertime, praise God. So I just bummed around, and you know people shared, they're doing cookouts and stuff. Hey, you want something to eat? You just befriend people and so on. But I was always looking over my shoulder, because, you know, there's I thought they're seeking me. You know they're they're gonna find me and put me in jail and so on. Well. 
then I was using the shower facilities for the campers up there. And the man in charge says, hey, look, you're not paying the camp here. If I see you up here using these facilities again, I'm going to call the police. So I made arrangements with some friends from my area that were going to Canada. And they agreed to take me to Canada, so I was going to defect to Canada. When I got to my hometown, they had car problems and they had to cancel the trip. So what was I going to do? There was a lady in our town who, she had a daughter that was several years younger than me. And, uh, but they were good friends. And this lady always had time to listen. Her name was Joanne Patterson. And I called her and uh, explained my situation. She said, well, you can come here and sleep. Okay, so I went. And one night after dinner, she said, I have to go out. And she told me before she left that she, being a parent, knew that my parents would be concerned. So to put their mind at ease, she said that uh, I called them and let them know you're here and you're safe. And I really think you should contact them, talk to them. And I thought, I can't do that. So then she goes out that evening. She comes back. She had talked to my priest. And her, my priest, my parents, they tried to work something out for me to help me. But I still couldn't face them. One day, when nobody was home, oh, I got to tell you this, because this is real important. This lady, she had had two daughters. One had cystic fibrosis. And when she was, I don't know, maybe 13 or something, she died. Right after she died, the husband left the scene, you know, left the mother and the other daughter. And he ended up becoming a Christian. He ended up becoming a good Christian by the way. I mean, God's weaving it all together in everybody's lives, right? Mm -hmm. And so she said she was just in a state of mind that she couldn't think. And uh, she wandered into a clergyman's office and he told her, Joanne, you're not meant to handle all this. He said, take, take your hands like this. Say, this is your hand, this is God's hand. Take all your troubles, imagine them, put them in God's hands and lift them to Him. And she said that helped to snap her out of it. So I went through these motions and uh, I felt lighter. So then one day my dad came knocking at the door when nobody was home and told me that he and the priest, I had talked to some people and they agreed that if I would go with them and turn myself in, they would call the Red Cross. The Red Cross would verify that I had attempted suicide and they would require that I would be put into a hospital. So that's the way it was. I was supposed to be taken to a hospital. But as soon as my dad and the priest left the MP station, uh, they handcuffed me, took me down the 
basement garage and took me to the old Allegheny County Jail, which was nothing like the new jail. <laughs> it was like a dungeon. Yeah, it was bad. So uh, I went there. The first night I was there, I felt so despicable. I crawled up in a corner like a little kid, and I had my face in my hands, and I just cried. I said, God, I don't know how you can forgive me. I've hurt you. I've hurt so many people. If only I could start over again, I'd live my life different. And as God is my witness, the walls disappeared, and God took me out into eternity. And I saw Jesus. You gotta remember, Jesus is eternal. God's in eternity. He could take us somewhere in the past. He could take us somewhere in the future. He could take us somewhere in the present. And so I saw Jesus like I see you, but I saw him when he was in agony on the cross. And I heard the voice of God the Father say, this is my son who died for you. And I felt a wonderful love and peace and forgiveness like I'd never experienced before in my life, as religious as I was. Then, as this is happening, I remembered you know how God calls things to your mind. Suddenly, I remembered in first grade, one of our very first catechism questions, why did God make you? God made me to know him, to love him, to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him in the next. And I said, God, I don't know you, do I? I want to know you. And then I remembered that in seventh grade, an old Roman Catholic nun was trying to help us to understand how short life is compared to eternity. And she says, children, just imagine that the earth is a big iron planet suspended in the universe. Every 10,000 years, a little dove flies past. His wing just brushes that earth. She said, you know, eternity is longer than it would take for that earth to disappear from the brush of that dove's wing. And in this situation, I said, God, I want to be with you for eternity. And all I said was, Jesus, please fill me with yourself and never let me lose this peace. I'll live for you all the days of my life, and I'll tell everybody I meet that if they're not living for you, they're not living. Well, instantly, I knew my slate was clean. Instantly, I knew I was alive to God like I'd never been before. And instantly, I knew that when I die, I'm going to heaven. Nobody explained that to me or anything. It was the knowing. And I had said to the Lord, Lord, I know the drinking's wrong, but I can't stop. Please help me. And he instantly delivered me from the alcohol, too. Thank God. So uh, after a week in the old Allegheny County Jail, I was taken, handcuffed with uh, another prisoner or two. I had met them until we were leaving and taken by MPs up to Fort Meade, Maryland to be put into a special processing battalion where people were just waiting to get out of the service. They didn't care what kind of a discharge they got.
And um, now can you imagine, and God is mindful of everything that we experience, but can you imagine being handcuffed, making a, a road trip, having to stop at different rest stops and that, and being handcuffed, and Jesus is Lord. I'll tell you, he gets us through everything. So here I am in this special processing battalion. It was uh, these guys, they just wanted to get out of service. And if they could do something to help them get out quicker, they would. We pulled details. I called garbage and stuff while we were there. I remember this one night there was a knife fight at the bottom of my bed. But here I am. I'm like, I'm in a bubble of peace, you know. It's like this peace of God that passes all understanding since mm. I met Jesus. It's unexplainable. Yeah. It's only when you know it that you understand When it. you know, you know. When you know, you know. Yeah. Okay, so my turn finally came to appear before the commanding officer to read off my what they call an Article 15. And you know about that. Oh, I do, yes. Okay. I, I spent some time in the Navy and the Army. Okay. But so, for those of us who don't know... It's a legal document that has your punishment on it, and stuff, okay. your crime and your punishment. I know the DD-214 is very important, but I don't know about this Article 15. <laughs> There's a few different articles, and Article 15 is probably one of the worst ones. Well, here I was, standing in my Class A uniform. He's about to read off my punishment. And all of a sudden, his telephone rang. And he answers it. He says, yes, sir, he's standing right here. So I remember I, s I literally swallowed hard, you know, and thought, I know I've done wrong. I know there's consequences, but I don't want to get a bad discharge. Please give me the grace to get through whatever I have to get through here. And so the man hangs up the phone and says, do you know Colonel Monsieur? I said, no, sir. And he says, well, he wants to see you. And he ripped up this legal document and threw it away. So he sends me up to a, another building. I got in to see the colonel. And he looked me in the eye and said, you know, I don't know you, but something inside me tells me I'm to hear your story and not give you any punishment. And that's the way it happened. And so he said... Have you gone to mental hygiene since you've been here? And I said, yeah. So he called up there, and they never made a report. So he had a friend that worked there, and he made me an appointment. I went and talked to this man. So the report comes back. Well, the doctor explained to me. He said, well, by talking to you all through your life, you never let anything upset you. You would stuff it. Okay, you just put it down in there. A lot of people do that. Yeah, it's not healthy. You got to talk about it. And when this whole Vietnam thing happened, it was a mass release of mental tension. Hmm. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> so don't let things build up, people. Don't let things build up. You know, nobody listening knows, but when you first arrived, I compared you to the Apostle Paul, to the guest that was just before you and saying, you know, most people will say, hey, I wish I could live a life like Paul. And I said, well, this is the guy that is living his life like Paul in this day and age. 
And now you're telling me that you were in prison and the prison walls came down and the guard just let you out. And I'm thinking, man, you really are like Paul. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, you know, not everybody has an experience with Jesus like you had. And it is clearly something he needed you to have to break you out of whatever mental prison you were in as well as the physical prison. But it has led you down a path of such devotion to him that the Holy Spirit is evident when you speak to you. The Holy Spirit is evident when you look at you. The Holy Spirit is evident in the things that you do, the books. You've, how many books have you written now? Six. Six books, literally glorifying God and testimonies thereof. You are clearly someone that God has chosen at an early age because he is eternal and he is past, present, and future. So that when he first formed the world, he knew that he was going to have you in it, right? right? And he knew at that moment that you would be having this podcast with us. And I am so very happy that you experienced the horrible things in your life that caused you to have your heart leap out to him for anything to hold on to and that he responded with love. I'm so grateful that you are here today. I'm so grateful for your story. I'm so grateful that you are who you are. You are truly, a lot of people, they, they will say that, like, you know, Jesus lived this life as a mortal, right? He's God in the flesh to prove that we could do it, but nobody can do it like Jesus did it, right? Right. And so I think that's always a bad example to people because it turns them off. Because I can't do that, right? Jesus did it, but he's, he was God, but he was a person, but he was God. And then we have you who had the life that you had, who believed that they were sanctimonious and glorified because you knew what those words meant and you would pray, and but you didn't know what you were doing, right? And then you had an experience with Jesus that transformed your life in such a way that you have never gone back from what I've heard of people that knew you from that era till now. No one has ever said a single word that is contradictory to who you are now. Not one. Praise God. And I have never met you before I started coming to this church. I didn't know your story. I didn't know your history. And the more I know, the more I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> right? And it's, it's evident. There's a few people here that I've met that the Holy Spirit is just evident in them. Just evident. And there's other people that, that aren't as obvious as you that when you get to talk to them, you're like, yep, there it is. Right? But with you, it's, it's literally shining, kind of like Moses's face when he came off the mountain, right? That he had to wear a veil because his presence near God, the holiness of God wore off in him so much that he was reflecting it still days later. And so I am very grateful for your story. I hope that it encourages people that it is possible to live a life for Christ in this era, that you don't have to reflect on Paul. You don't have to try to, to live your life to an unattainable standard, but there is a way through obedience, through giving your heart solely and wholly to Jesus that a lot of us, I think, fail with because we don't want to get rid of something. You know, it's a hard part for us to say, oh, God, I'll give you my life. And he says, how about this? And well, well, hold on a minute. You know, that's not really hurting anybody. And that's not the point. The point is, if God calls you to give it up, you should give it up. And you're living a life of proof that living in his glory living in his grace, living in his mercy, produces such fruit that people see it, that are blessed by it, that your books are full of testimonies from people that have experienced Christ. And I just really thank you for your obedience to the Father. I thank you so much for your, your walk with Jesus. I thank you so much that you are an ambassador for Christ in such a way that you understand the awesome magnitude of being a representation of God Almighty 
and you are that guy, right? You hear uh, Pastor Luke talk about, hey, that's him. That's him. That's the guy, right? That's what that means. So that's, well, that's you. You're him. You're the guy that is proof that you can walk a holy life. You're the guy that proof that you can walk a godly life, that you can be in obedience to him, that, that when people say, hey, you know, I try for the self-control. It's just so hard, but there is a way, right? How often did you struggle with self-control? You know, when you, before you were in a relationship, before you right. profoundly were in a relationship with them, there was no self-control. Exactly. You did what Rick wanted to do, and they weren't the smartest decisions. Uh, and none of us make the smartest decisions, uh, no matter how smart we are. And I really love the life that you live for him. And I love the encouragement that your life brings without you saying anything, just that your life is bringing is encouraging to others. This is true for all of us, whether we know it or not. You know, we all have an impact. So I end up working for the colonel. And he told me that uh, I could finish my time out in the service. And he talked to people in Department of the Army, and I would never again be put on orders to a combat zone. So then after working a while under him, I was asked if I wanted to go TDY, which is temporary duty, and you don't have to live on base, and you get extra pay. And I said, oh, yeah. So um, where to? To the Pentagon to work for the Deputy Chief of Staff of Personnel. So I was all excited about that and came home that weekend to uh, Oakmont from Maryland and told everybody, well, I, was, I had been such a liar during that whole episode. They didn't know that they could believe me. So here I go. I go back to, uh, well, it was the following Monday. I was waiting in the outer office of the colonel. I had my duffel backpack. I had my orders in my hand. And the phone in the outer office rang. <laughs> and it was the uh, Pentagon. And they said, Hey, tell that guy we have to cancel the orders because there's not the money in the budget to pay the extra TDY pay, temporary duty pay. And I said in my heart, God, how could you do this to me? How could you build this all up? And then, like, have the rug pulled out from under me at the last minute. And God spoke to me and said, see, if you would have let me have my way with those orders to Vietnam, I could have changed them in the very last minute. Isn't that mm. amazing? And then we must trust God. I ended up getting a promotion, getting an Arcom medal, Army Commendation Medal, you know, for being a good soldier, stuff like that. So, but when I went to clear, well, they asked me uh, also, during this time, is there any place you want to go? I said, I'd like to go back to Fort Knox, Kentucky. So I went and uh, they sent me on job interviews and nobody wanted me because I had been AWOL. So I end up in a, a black whack is in charge of this office and I had my orders, you know, and she said, would you like to work here? And I said, uh, yes, ma'am. She said, well, report Thursday or whatever. And I said, well, I mean, you didn't even look at my records. 
and you don't know my past. She said, well, it doesn't matter what your past is. She said, today is a new day, a new beginning. She was the nicest lady. She was a Jehovah Witness lady. And there was a Christian lady, and we're still in touch today, the Christian family. Her name was Veda Fryer. They were uh, farm people, and uh, they would invite me to church and stuff like that. Well, they lived uh, about an hour away. But that's where I learned all the old hymns. They had an old farmhouse, piano in there, and the kids all played instruments, and I learned the hymns. They took me under their wing, Southern Baptists, and uh, really, really helped me along. And that's another thing. When we give our lives to Jesus, we need to get into a good church. We need to seek out people who are like-minded as us and get all of God that you can. Go to prayer meetings, different services. and So after the Army, then what? Oh, that's good. (laughs) After the Army... Because you didn't just become Pastor Rick overnight. Oh, no. No, this is, an, this is interesting, okay? After the Army, I came home, and I collected a nice sum of unemployment for a year. But I began meeting people right away who knew Jesus like I knew Jesus. And there were prayer meetings. I believe I went to a prayer meeting or a Bible study every day or night for that year. There was such revival in the area. This was during the charismatic renewal, if you know what that is. Okay, started at Duquesne University, and uh, it was wonderful. So uh, then uh, I got a job as a short order cook at a nice restaurant bar that was up by a golf course up where the rich people lived in our town, you know. But I would witness and witness and witness. And uh, there were these two waitresses there, Miriam and Josie. And I was bold in my witness. And they would smoke and they'd blow the smoke and they'd joke and stuff like that, you know. They didn't want to hear it. Four years after I had left there, Now I lived out in this area, and uh, the phone rang. And I didn't have caller ID or anything. I don't even think they had it then. The Lord says, that's Miriam Sasela. And so I answered the phone, and this voice says, Rick Cardell, you'll never guess who this is. I said, Miriam Sasela. She said, how'd you know? I said, well, God told me. And she said, I want to thank you, and Josie wants to thank you for witnessing to us because we've accepted the Lord, and we're spirit-filled. And they were, she was actually in a friend of mine's church, Pastor Ray Patterson, and uh, Day Spring Christian Center in Tarentum. So she invited me. She lived in a place called Verona. It was about an hour away from where I live here. She was a Greek lady, and she loved to cook. And she would cook up a bunch of food. I think it was maybe once a month or a couple times a month. And, you know, I talked to her pastor and got his approval and everything. She had me over to do a Bible study. 
So she'd feed all these people, and then we share the things of God. Pray, oh, they were good meetings. I'd take a bunch of people with me, you know, too. And all God like minded people. We had great memories. And so one day, they want a prayer for her brother and her sister in law who were buying, in the process of buying an old church in Claysville, PA. Way out. And uh, they said, yeah, and the main reason is we want to get these guys saved, you know, and we'll have you out and you can do services out there. Okay. So we did, uh, we prayed, they did get the place. And then just different seasons in life, I wasn't doing the meetings at Miriam's anymore. And, you know, out of touch. And 12 years passed, no contact with them about it. And uh, we had a young girl in the church, she sang in a choir, and she came from a real dysfunctional family. And one day we heard that she was put into a home. The home was, was called Frida's. It was a little wooden place out in like the deep woods of Claysville. <laughs> And so I went out to visit her. It was so dark and dingy in there, and the people were so drugged up. There was only maybe a dozen people, but they were so, they were like zombies. And I said, uh, hey, when's the last time you had church here? And the lady who worked there says, we can't get a pastor to come way out here. I said, well, let's have church now. So that started having church services there once a month. And oh boy, when I think of the things I did, the chances I took, I used to take a van from here and bring them to, all the way at the Claysville, and bring them to special things that we had here. Oh my goodness, you never knew what these people were gonna do, you know? So anyways, they were happy times. But people got saved, people got delivered, people got filled with Holy Ghost, people got healed. And then one day, I would take uh, a guitarist and his wife, and she played the violin, and you know, they did nursing homes with me. So we did that for two years. One day we went there, and the place was all boarded up and closed down. So I said to my helpers, we're not wasting this trip out to Claysville. We're gonna find that veteran's home. And so we found it, and I said, as we go in the door, just start playing the guitar, you know, and we'll sing. So we went in and uh, we're singing. And who was there working but Miriam? <laughs> she said, praise God, you couldn't have come at a better day. Hmm. She said, these guys are all so, there was such a spirit of heaviness and depression. She says, I told them, don't even talk to me today unless I talk to you. Well. A lot of them were, you know, they were schizophrenic and stuff like that, you know, all on medication. But we went there and we did meetings there for many, many, many years. People got saved, workers got saved, people got filled with the Holy Ghost, people got healed. A lady from the church here, older lady, Laura Donnellan's mother, she would come out, she'd bring a little keyboard and she'd play and lead us in songs. And then one day, somebody put a piano outside 
and Fran saw it. She checked it out. Somehow, we got the church van. We went, and we got that piano up in that van, took it out to Glazer. <laughs> but all these different things, it's, it's so amazing. Miriam's one grandson got filled with the Holy Ghost out there. It's tremendous outreach. And then one maybe last thing, one day we went out, and we just started the service, and the guy says, uh, I'm going to go outside. And I said, he wanted to smoke. I said, I know it's a nice day. Why don't we all go outside and we'll have the service outside? <laughs> so we did. And the Lord prompted me to tell the people, sing as loud as you can. So we did. Little did I know that the old dilapidated house next to this place, you know, on the other side of the property, was uh, also a nursing home. So the next month when we went, and one of the ladies at the veterans' home says, last month when you were here and you went outside, the lady heard you singing. She brought the people to the window, and she said, do you think they would come here? So we did both those meetings on that day for many, many, many years hmm. until God closed the door. Well, the veterans' house eventually burned down, you know, and... But different seasons for different things. Mm -hmm. But isn't life exciting with Jesus? It's quite the adventure when you follow his prompting. Uh-huh. I can also say I don't have any stories of adolescents that come to mind that are so profound or awesome or things that I share. But every single story that I have that's worth sharing has Jesus involved. Exactly. Every single one. Yeah. Every single one. I can't say, oh, when I was a kid, I did this, how great this was and how great that was. Nothing comes to mind. Mm -hmm. But I could tell you the stories of healing that I've seen, the stories of miracles, the stories of encouragement, the stories of, of him moving in profound ways. Like this, you got to listen to this. This Modern is really cool. Modern day miracles. Yeah. And they're there. God's wanting them to happen all the time. Mm -hmm. And if we're where we should be with God, we'll recognize them. We see them everywhere. Even yeah. when something bad happens, we can look to God. Okay, how are you going to turn this for good? Because mm -hmm. I'm praising you. I'm thanking you. And this couldn't have got by you, Lord God. So you're going to weave it and make something good out of it for mm -hmm. your glory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we get these glory stories that we tell and we encourage other people with them. Those are my favorite. It's one of the reasons why I started this. You know, I had heard so many stories that of encouragement. I'm like, people need to hear these because they're amazing. And uh, we're just here to bring them to the light, you know, mm -hmm. be an encouragement. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad we got to know you today and you were able to share all of that. And wow, it's just amazing how God's working all of it together for our good. So... Do we have time to lead the people in a prayer to give their eyes to yes. Jesus? Yes. And uh, get baptized in the Holy Ghost too? Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Now, if you're hearing this broadcast and you really want an exciting life, you're fed up with the bad things in your life, why don't you look to Jesus and hook up with him? He loves you so much. He gave every single thing, every drop of his blood, to show his love for you. And if you would just believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that 
He is the Savior. He's your Savior. He will come in and it will change you just like he did me and everyone else who's asked him to come in. And then you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's as easy as asking Jesus into your heart. When you ask Jesus into your heart, you actually get the Holy Spirit in you. But we all need to yield to him and ask him to come upon us. And then, just like on the day of Pentecost, you allow the Holy Spirit to fill you. And then there's something that you must do, and that is you must use your mouth and your voice and release sounds, utterances. The Bible says that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So I encourage you to do that today. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. If this episode has been a blessing to you, we ask that you pass it along so it can be an encouragement to others. And if you'd like to come alongside us, we have a fundraising campaign that helps us pay for the audio expenses. And if you look up givesendgo.com and then look up God's Goodness Podcast, you can give there. And we would greatly appreciate the help. And with that, we'll talk to you next time.